All right, let's take our Bibles and turn together to the book of Hebrews. This is not one of those books that we lost an overview for. This is one of those books that we skipped the overview for because around that time we were teaching through the book of Hebrews. So we have an opportunity now to go back tonight and to see the big picture that the book of Hebrews itself is painting. This is one of my favorite books in the New Testament. It may be number two favorite for me. Revelation is my favorite. That's not just because I'm preaching through that book right now. I know, I know every pastor's favorite passage is the one he's preaching next Sunday. But even on weeks when I'm not preaching from the Revelation, it's still my favorite. But Hebrews is probably second. And I think there's probably some reason why those are atop the list. Revelation has had been, for a season of my walk with Jesus, this sort of mystifying, mysterious book that was kept from understanding. And, and so when you gain access to that, there tends to be some enthusiasm about that. What I've come to appreciate about the book is, is an apocalyptic simplicity that is powerful and moving and quite gospel-focused. And I, I hope you're benefiting from our approach to the book of Revelation on Sunday morning. Hebrews is probably second to the book of Revelation in the New Testament in terms of how it's regarded um, with, with regards to its level of difficulty and understanding. You could argue that other books like Romans would, would be ahead of Hebrews in terms of difficulty to understand. But the cultural difference between where we are as 21st century Western Christians and where the first century church addressed in the book of Hebrews existed is so great that it does really contribute at some certain points along the way to some difficulty in understanding. There's just a lot of cultural difference between here and there. Cultural distance, rather, between here and there. But once you begin to see the movement and the flow of the book of Hebrews, it is, again, a very gospel-focused and powerful celebration of the sustaining work of Jesus in our life. I think it's helpful in our, our looking at big picture stuff to consider the basic message of a book. We, you know, we haven't talked in these terms, but basically what we're doing on Wednesday night is biblical theology. We could have a sidebar discussion about the importance and significance of that. But that's essentially what we're doing. We're determining, on the basis of a biblical text, its contribution to the meta-narrative of Scripture, to the grand story of God's redemption of a people all His own, to the glory of His name, to the culmination of that salvation on the last day from beginning to end. What contribution is Hebrews making to the message of the Bible? That's essentially the question before us tonight. And with every book in both the Old and the New Testament, there are two primary messages. There is the basic theological message, the claim about God that is made in that book. And then there is the primary practical message of that book. In other words, who is God and what are we to now do in light of these observations concerning the character of God? The book of Hebrews makes a very straightforward and very simply understood claim about the character of God. Specifically, the second person of the Godhead, the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ. And here it is. The basic theological message of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. The basic theological message of Hebrews is the supremacy of Jesus Christ over all things. And second to that, 
the basic practical message of the book of Hebrews. What we are to gain from that realization. What we are to draw from the knowledge that Jesus is supreme over all things is the ability to persevere come what may. The practical message of the book of Hebrews is, as believers, you and I must persevere. And we can persevere because Jesus is supreme over all things. The invitation of the book itself is that we fixate on Jesus, that we keep our eyes focused there, that we lean not into our own understanding, our self-will, our determination, our religious methods or religiosity, that we lean not into the methods of our religious practice, but that we look to Jesus for the sustaining power necessary to, to hold us up, to sustain us in seasons of great difficulty. We talked about the cultural distance between here and, and that of the congregation that would have originally received the book of Hebrews. If you can imagine a Jewish people, a Jewish person individually, coming to faith in Jesus, after that point in time in the early history of the church when Jews and Christians went their separate way, to come to faith in Jesus was to lose your cultural identity. To come to faith in Jesus was to lose your roots, to lose your family, to lose a sense of purpose and direction, to lose, in essence, all you had known. Now, I realize there are great similarities between the ethics and the system of Judaism set forth in the Old Testament, what Jesus has invited us to in the Gospel, in the New Testament. I'm not suggesting that those are in any way at odds. Coming to faith in Christ is the culmination. It is the fulfillment of all that was promised in the Old Covenant. The very birth of Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenants of the Old Testament. But in this season of the church's history, when such a stark line has been drawn between Jews and Christians to come to faith in Jesus was to lose your identity. And the temptation, the constant temptation, the gravitational pull of the world was to come away from this faith commitment to Jesus and back into the identity you had always known for yourself. And what the author of Hebrews is saying to the church is that holding fast and finishing well it's, you're not going to find that ability in your religious practice or your self-will or your personal determination. But if you'll keep your eyes focused on Jesus, He has the power not only to save but to keep. That is the message again and again in the book of Hebrews, that we would keep our focus, that we would keep our mind, that we would keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. That Jesus is not just the answer to our sin problem in salvation, but that Jesus is further the answer to our weariness and our disloyalty through his sustaining power when we continue to lean into the gospel. This theme of Jesus' superiority or his supremacy over all things begins in the very first verses of the book of Hebrews and is carried all the way through chapter 10. The 13 chapters here, chapter 11, chapter 12, and chapter 13 are given to more practical matters, but this first 10 chapters of the book are just about pressing the claim that Jesus is better. 
In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, we find that Jesus is a better revelation than the Old Testament. In other words, in the Old Testament, we come to know about the character of God. You learn about who God is in the Old Testament. But there comes a point in time in human history when there's a better way for us to know the character of God. With the sending forth of God's only Son, we have a profound point of reference for understanding the character of our God. He is the image of the invisible God. The Father was pleased that the fullness of the Godhead would dwell bodily in Jesus Christ. Jesus would say to the Pharisees, Pharisees often, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. If you want to know who God is, you need look no further than his Son, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 1. Long ago, the Bible says, uh, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now there is more, more truth packed into those verses then we've time to cover tonight. we got 13 chapters to go, so we can't camp here long. What the, what the Bible is saying here is that in the same way that the sun casts its rays, that we know the light of the sun and the warmth of the sun by virtue of its bright radiance, so too we know the Father through the radiant glory of Jesus Christ. We know the warmth of his compassion. We know the heat of his fierce wrath towards sin. We know the brightness of the Father's great holiness through the radiant glory of his only Son, Jesus Christ. This whole idea of there being some dichotomy between the God of the Old Testament and who we find Jesus to be in the New Testament could simply not be further from the truth. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the bright radiance of the Father's great glory. In chapter 1, verse 5, through chapter 2 and verse number 18, we find here that Jesus is better than the angels. There seems to have been some kind of fixation on angel worship, on spiritualism in the negative sense in the days of the writing of the book of Hebrews that is combated against or battled against here in our passage. Several years ago, probably 12 or 15 years ago now, my, my daddy and I were down on the Mexican border on a hunt. And uh, it, was, it was Sunday morning, and so we... We went to find a church, and I was skeptical as to our ability and our little hole in the world that we found ourselves in that we'd find anywhere to worship. But we found a little Baptist church out there, and, uh, and, and we sat down, and I was doing, you know, I don't get to go to just go to church very often. And when I do, I try to be careful to not let anyone know that I'm a pastor. So I was doing my try to 
go under the radar. They'll ask you to preach if you're not careful, and so you just try to not say much and, and be undercover, and, and, which, which you can't do. This is an aside and not relevant to our discussion tonight, but if you even look at my father as though you're going to ask him to pray publicly, he will jump up and say he's a pastor. That's how that usually goes if I go anywhere with my daddy. And, but that, that morning, in, in this deeply Catholic context, the, the preacher was preaching from this passage. And I, I found some relevance in, that, in this passage that I don't know that I had considered before. In, in a, a deeply Catholic context where there is a tendency to drift toward the worship of angels and saints who've come before us and to see spirituality in terms that aren't altogether connected to the reality painted in the Bible. What the author of Hebrews is saying to us here, emphasizing for us, is that we'd be aware that, that there is a place for our appreciation and gladness of heart that, that there are angels unawares and that God has assigned, it seems in Revelation, angels to his churches for provision and for protection. Th those things are good, but we don't make our rejoice there, or even that we have power over demons. Jesus even instructed the disciples that that, not, that ought not be your source of celebration, but that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And your names are written in the Lamb's book of life precisely because of the Lordship of Jesus over our life who has inscribed our names there in the foundation of the world and who has sought us and bought us by his redeeming blood. There may be an element of mystery and even fascination with such spiritual things, but the focus of our heart and minds ought to always be that of Christ and not angels or demons or any such things. I, I want to be careful to point out, and I don't know that I did a great job with this in the sermon series through the book of Hebrews, that there are contemporary parallels to each of these institutions identified in the book of Hebrews. For instance, if we, if we wanted to begin to draw some of those parallels, we, we, might, we might compare the Old Testament example used in chapter 1 and 1 through 4 with the idea that maybe if we memorize enough Scripture, if we keep enough commandments, then that will, that will sustain us. Maybe we could say those comparisons could be a, a parallel to the modern-day expressions of religion. We could say with the author of Hebrews that Jesus is better than religion, that religion won't sustain you, but Jesus will. And if we were to draw contemporary parallels between the angel fascination of the first century and where we are today, there's a great deal of fascination with spiritual things in a culture that seems to be so bent on opposing anything that is of the Lord, there is a high degree of spirituality that remains even in our backward and sometimes seemingly pagan culture. And what we might say on the basis of the teaching of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better than spiritualism. That your spirituality won't sustain you, but Jesus ultimately will. And we could continue this on. The next example, the next point of reference is Moses. In Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, Jesus is better than Moses. And that's a major point of focus. Moses becomes a way of, of, of setting forth. Moses becomes identified in some ways with legalism in the New Testament. 
the, the focus of the Pharisees and the Sadducees were the books of Moses, the laws of Moses, keeping the commandments of Moses. And we might say, in a contemporary sense, on the basis of the teaching of Hebrews, that Jesus is better than legalism. Your legalism will not sustain you. You will eventually grow bitter, or you will rebel against the chains that bind you. But Jesus will withhold you in your weak, or withstand, hold you up in your weak and weary days. Jesus is better than religious practice. So all of these points of reference in the book of Hebrews have modern-day parallels. It's not just that Jesus is better than everything in the mind of a first-century, formerly Jewish Christian. It is that Jesus is better than whatever's floating around in your heart and mind. Whatever you've convinced yourself would uphold you, would, would sustain you, Jesus is better. Not just in, in, in terms of value, but, but practically, from a from a purely utilitarian perspective. Jesus is better at saving you. Jesus is better at upholding you. You may get these flickers of promise and hope from these earthly institutions or whatever you've contrived in your imagination, but only Jesus can save to the uttermost. And only Jesus can uphold you in your day of weariness and of weakness. Look at chapter 3 and verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers and companions in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. I think that's the key theological verse in this first section of the book of Hebrews, by the way. Verse 2 said, he was the one who was, or rather, he was faithful to the one who appointed him just as Moses was in all God's household. For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. Now every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household as a testimony to what would be said in the future, but Christ was faithful as a son over his household, and we are that household if we hold on to the courage and confidence of our hope. Moses is great. Moses is outstanding. Moses was a servant in the house of God, but Jesus built the house of God. He is master over the house and is therefore superior. I said to you that I think verse 1 is a key theological verse in the book of Hebrews. Consider Jesus. It's the, it's the primary imperative. That's the force of the book is there. Think about Jesus. <laughs> We like action items. Like I like the feeling of accomplishment that comes with checking the last thing off my list of things to do on a given day. I'm that, I'm that guy. If I have something to do during the course of the day that is not on the checklist that I established at the beginning on the day of the day, I will be careful to put it on the list before I do it just so that I have the joy of marking it off the list of things I needed to do on that particular day. I'm, I'm just that guy. But Hebrews does not give us a list of action items. This is not go out and do these nine things and you can draw near to Jesus. This is not nine ways to live your life, three ways to have a healthier, healthier marriage, six ways to share the gospel, nine ways to memorize scripture, 12 ways to be a better participant in the life of your church. This is just one big action item, and it all happens between your ears. Consider Jesus. If, if you want to know where sustaining power comes from in your life, 
You need only dwell, meditate on the things of God. Just think about Jesus. Just think about Jesus. The tendency is to think that what we do with our hands, our feet, the things that we do, the places we go, the things that we say with our mouth, that these are the most consequential things that we can do. But far more often than we like to admit, the most consequential activities in our life experience are unfolding between our ears. The Apostle Paul said that we should be careful to bring every thought captive to, to, to obedience to Christ, that we would master our every thought, that everything that we would think about would be focused on Jesus. This is, I'm kind of the first of the attention deficit disorder generation. In my generation, I don't, I don't know about now, and I, I, listen, this is a generalization, but in my generation, that usually meant you just didn't get enough whippings when you were little. That's what that usually meant. Uh, and we, we struggle to focus on anything. We, we, we just cannot give time and extended attention to anything. I, I'm even, I'm observing in my boys, I got 17 and 14 and three. When I, when I was 17 and 14 years old, I would get in trouble because I would be glued to a television on a Saturday watching wall-to-wall college football. From the time I woke up, it was game day at 7 in the morning until the late-night West Coast game was happening out in what used to be the Pac-12. And now they would, they would rather just watch the highlights when the games, because they don't have the attention span to sit and watch a three- or a four-hour game. That's not a positive thing. I'm not sure it's positive that I would be glued to a television screen for 14 hours on a Saturday. But the loss of attention span is deeply concerning. And it's reflected in our spiritual lives as well. There's a spiritual form of attention deficit disorder where we don't find in ourselves the capacity to focus on or to meditate on the things of God. And here's how it always shows up, at least in everyday conversation. The, the constant confession of our inability to remain focused in our prayers to God. What does it say of us that we cannot prayerfully fellowship with God for more than 30 or 40 seconds at a time without our minds drifting off somewhere else? I, I really think that meditation on the things of God is a helpful spiritual discipline that ought to be practiced far more often in our Christian lives than what it is in realities. Even in our devotional life, this is reflected. It used to be that among the Puritans in the American colonies, devotional times would be 45 minutes to an hour. There'd be 30 minutes of scripture reading, and there'd be 15 minutes of prayer time, and that reading and that prayer time would be quite focused, and there'd be uh, a settling in without distraction, without the background noise of life as we know it now. And now a devotional book is, is usually a, a page with, with less writing than blank space and barely a paragraph with minimal substance as it relates to the character of God. That's about the length of our attention span. And I'm not dogging that. Like if you're doing that, it's better than doing nothing. But there really ought to be some effort on our part to give more careful consideration to who Jesus is and all that he's done for us. Heed the command of Scripture. Bring every thought captive to obedience to Christ and just consider 
Jesus. The psalmist says it quite simply, be still and know that I am God. So Jesus is better than Moses. The next section in the book is pretty important as well. Jesus is better than Joshua. Chapter 4 begins this way. Therefore, while the promise to enter his rest remains, let us fear that none of you should miss it. It's a reference to the generation of Moses that sent the spies into the promised land, observed that there were giants in the land, and in unbelief, rebelled against the plan to enter in and to conquer by the power of God. Ten of the twelve spies did not believe, and because of their unbelief, God says, you've seen it, but you're not going to participate in it. And this generation is going to wander for 40 years in the wilderness, eventually die off, and the next generation is going to enter in to rest. Joshua was to lead them, Moses' younger protege. And in some ways, Joshua did lead the children of Israel into the rest promised by the promised land, but it was a partial rest. Joshua and the Israelites were to go in and they were to eradicate the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Ammonites, and all of the Ite people that lived in the land that flowed with milk and honey. But they re rejected the plan of God, failed to do what he had called them to do, and so the rest that God would have afforded them in the promised land remained a partial rest for them for all their days. Jesus is better than Joshua in the book of Hebrews in the sense that what he has afforded us is not a partial rest, but a full and final rest. And the parallels between the experience of the Israelites and that of ours in Jesus are apparent. We have been promised the promised land, but as it stands, we're wandering around in a land that is not our own. With the promise of Jesus that he will one day lead us to cross over the Jordan River. To enter into the fullness of rest he has afforded us by his grace and favor. One day Jesus will lead us over into the rest that awaits us by faith in him. For those who would shrink back in unbelief, they'll not participate in that rest. They may hear of the promise of rest. They may get opportunities along the way in parts, to, in, in a partial way, to look across the Jordan and daydream or imagine what it might be like on the other side, but they'll not enter the rest that Jesus has secured for us by faith and repentance in his name. Jesus is better than Joshua in the sense that what Joshua could only do in part Jesus is done in absolute perfection. Chapter 4 moves in verses 14 through 16, the final verses in the chapter, to the idea that Jesus is a better high priest. And the focus of chapter 5 is likewise on Jesus' high priestly service. If you go to verse 14 of chapter 4, the Bible says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to the confession. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who's been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. Jesus is a better high priest. He's a better high priest because he's made a better sacrifice, sacrifice of his own blood. He's a better priest because he is eternal. 
Jesus is not like the earthly high priest serving for a season, passing away and being replaced by the next in his ancestral lineage. Jesus reigns forever as our great high priest. Jesus is a better high priest in that the earthly high priest were only mimicking. They were symbolizing the heavenly reality. In other words, God gave the people of Israel the temple as an earthly replica of the heavenly reality. And the high priest was to enter into the Holy of Holies and to, and to make the atoning sacrifice as a symbol of the heavenly reality fulfilled perfectly in Jesus, who as our great high priest would make a sacrifice not of bulls and goats, but of himself, bringing before not a replica, but the immediate physical presence of the Father, his atoning blood making application of that blood not to a symbol of the heavenly reality, but in the heavenly reality, the atoning sacrifice of, of his righteous blood, liberating us not just for a season until the next day of atonement rolled around, but for eternity. Jesus made a once and for all sacrifice of himself, shedding his once and for all blood atoning once and for all our great sin before the Father. And then sitting himself down at the right hand of the Father, our eternal advocate, if ever an accusation be brought against us. Jesus is a better high priest. He is our great high priest. His work cannot and will not be surpassed. This remains the focus of chapter 6 and even into chapters 7 and 8. There is a bit of a wrinkle introduced in chapters 7 and 8 in that we're informed of Jesus' superiority not only to every other high priest, but Jesus' superiority to the high priest known as Melchizedek in the Genesis narrative. Melchizedek is one of my favorite figures in all of the Old Testament, and his uh, character is used here to emphasize the eternal nature of Jesus' high priestly reign. I personally believe that Melchizedek in the Genesis narrative represents an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. I believe that on a number of bases, not the least of which is the fact that the Bible says for an end and the only person for which I know this to be true is Jesus. That's a longer discussion for another day and maybe a sidebar post-Wednesday night prayer meeting, but Melchizedek is a fascinating figure that you might uh, be encouraged by spending a little time with here in uh, Hebrews chapters 7 and 8. Once you get to chapter 9, there's a sort of a building on this idea of Jesus as a better high priest, Jesus as Melchizedek. Into chapter 9, Jesus established a better covenant. What Jesus has done for us is established a new covenant with God. A new covenant that serves as the fulfillment of all of the covenants of the Old Testament. The English word testament is just, it's, it's just another way of saying covenant. The Old Testament of your Bible is the Old Covenant. The New Testament of your Bible is the New Covenant. And as Jesus said in the Lord's Supper... This covenant is the new covenant in Jesus' blood shed for many 
for the remission of sin. We do what we do at the Lord's table in remembrance of that new covenant until Jesus comes again. Hebrews chapter 9 says that this new covenant is a better covenant than all the old. Not just because it subsumes the old covenants, but because the provisions of this covenant are superior to those of the old. There seems to be in the old covenant a sense in which that covenant is conditioned upon the obedience of the subjects of the covenant. Now admittedly, God works in great grace and often chooses to forgive the unrighteousness of the people of Israel, remaining steadfast at their side in spite of their unfaithfulness. But there are also seasons, great extended seasons in the Old Testament's history during which God allows, given the violation of that covenant, that great consequence befall the people of Israel for their disobedience. The new covenant accounts for our weaknesses. It, it is as though God observes the walk of the people of Israel in the old covenant. He, he's not observing this in real time as though he's being informed by their decisions, but in the foundations of the world recognizes an inability in this people, an inability in all of mankind to keep in perfection the commands, the stipulations that God puts before us. And so it is in the new covenant, not only does God give us a command, but he writes the command on the tablet of our heart. That's a, that's a symbolic way of saying he's enabling in us obedience. And even further than that, recognizing that though the Spirit is willing through the new covenant, that the flesh is weak, that in spite of His inscribing His command on our heart, there is still this limited capacity given the curse of sin to honor and obey the commandments of God in our life. His only Son would fulfill the righteous requirement of that law in absolute perfection. In other words, the Old Covenant required the people of Israel to do something. The New Covenant acknowledges our inability to do it. And so God enters in by His Son, enters into human history to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. We, we say that a lot. God does for us in salvation what we couldn't do for ourselves. And I think most of the time we understand that as exclusive to the death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. It's true, we could not do that for ourselves. But I think often we, we neglect to give any thought whatsoever to Jesus fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law over the duration of his life. Like in our mind, the gospel is Jesus dies and Jesus is buried and Jesus is raised again. But I would contend that the perfect, righteous life of Jesus is an essential element to our salvation from sin. It is that in Jesus' life, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled. That he might be a suitable sacrifice for our sin and that his his deposit of righteousness into the account of our life would be sufficient to merit the favor of God on the day of our great judgment. Jesus has fulfilled in perfection the righteous requirement of the law, has established a covenant, a new covenant, superior to the old. Look just quickly 
at chapter 9 and verse number 11. But the Messiah has appeared, high priest of the good things that have come, in the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a young cow sprinkling those who are defiled sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our heart or our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. We have in Jesus a better covenant. Chapter 10 is focused on Jesus as a better sacrifice. It's here in verse 4 of chapter 10 that we learn that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. We learn of the necessity of the shedding of blood for the remission of sins, and it is celebrated here, the superiority of Jesus as a sacrifice over all others. Chapter 11 is sort of where the practical exhortations of the book begin in part, although I would argue that you could still see chapter 11 as a continuation of the theological section of the book of Hebrews, this great hall of faith chapter as it's often referred to, or the faith chapter. 19 separate individuals are made reference to here 21 times. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, by faith something happens. And the author of Hebrews is demonstrating here that the faith that saves us moves us in our innermost to directly act upon what we've come to believe about the work of our God and His Son, Jesus Christ. I, I, think, I think this is, again, a continuation of the theological substance of the book because the call of the book is that we would consider Jesus and trust that our meditations on the goodness of Jesus in the gospel will move us to do what is necessary to persevere in the faith. Here in chapter 11, after this lengthy case has been made, that all we really need to sustain us is to consider Jesus, to meditate on Jesus, the author of Hebrews is demonstrating verse by verse by verse that with barely an understanding of the character of God, these men and women were moved in heroic and noble ways to follow faithfully after the plan and the path of God. Though there were in several examples cited here in Hebrews chapter 11, considerable failures on the part of these biblical characters. They were sufficiently moved by faith to follow after the plan and the path of God. Chapters 12 and 13 are without question those practical exhortations at the close of this book, reminding us that we are to lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us and run with endurance the race that lies before us. Reminding us that in the same way Jesus was despised and rejected, sent outside the camp to suffer for our sins, we ought to bear with the indignities that can sometimes come with following after Jesus and do so with a sense of nobility and honor, following in the footsteps of our Savior, Jesus Christ. There are more straightforward, more practical, simpler exhortations that are found there. The marriage bed must be respected by all and, and kept undefiled because God will judge immoral people. The reminder that God is our steadfast helper, that we ought not be afraid, that man cannot do to us what he imagines he can, that what might be taken away in this life would be restored in the resurrection. 
the basic reminder that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, the lone, stable, and even stabilizing force in our life, that in Him there is no change, no variation, no shadow of turning, that He is trustworthy, reliable, and faithful in every conceivable way. And then a concluding prayer, a prayer for the church, an urging that they would receive this message of exhortation and be aware of the condition of those within this missionary party to celebrate with them the work that God is, is doing among them and that God would can continue to do into the future. If, if, you, if, you, if you really think about the function of the book of Hebrews, a book to disperse Christians in a hostile culture, there's a tremendous amount of relevance here in spite of the cultural distance between here and there. Here we are as followers of Jesus in a culture that is increasingly hostile to the message of the gospel, called by God to hold fast, to be faithful, to persevere, to remain, to abide in Jesus. Hebrews' message is straightforward. All we need, all we need to persevere, to hold fast, is found in Jesus. Jesus. Keep your focus, keep your meditation there. And rid yourself as much as conceivably possible of this spiritual attention deficit disorder and strain your thoughts and, and labor intensely to bring every thought captive to obedience to Jesus.